Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Mary-Kate Howard. Mary-Kate is the Program Director for CASA Youth Advocates, serving Delaware and Chester Counties in Pennsylvania. Well, welcome, Mary-Kate. Thank you so much for being part of the AOI podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's so nice to have someone else from Pennsylvania in the podcast series again. What I'd like to do first is ask you if you would please tell us a little bit about yourself and how it is that you got connected with the foster care system here in PA. Absolutely. I've worked as a professional in the child welfare system in Pennsylvania for the past 14 years. Um, After finishing my master's program at Bryn Mawr, I started my social work career working with a private provider foster care agency. So in this role, I was responsible for recruiting, training, and completing family profiles for people who wanted to become foster parents. During this time, I developed a particular interest in working with kinship foster families, supporting them in meeting the state requirements to have their family members come and live in their homes. And eventually, my role expanded to include helping many of the same families prepare for something called permanent legal custody, which is a legal process that allows the foster caregiver to become a long-term custodian for the child without the biological parent's rights being terminated. And so I was getting to see families at the beginning of their time in foster care and as they were exiting the foster care system, but was really missing out on the experience of working with kids in that important journey in between. Mm -hmm. And so nine years ago, when I was looking for a new professional role, um, I was really happy to find a position at CASA Youth Advocates, where I started as a case supervisor, supervising volunteer advocates in the child welfare system, and have since progressed into the role of program director. Okay. And you've been in Pennsylvania the whole time? I have been in Pennsylvania the whole time. I'm um, a native to Pennsylvania. I briefly lived outside of the state in Ohio, but Pennsylvania born and have largely stayed. Okay. The CASA Youth Advocates Organization that you work with, CASA is national, is it not? It is. CASA Youth Advocates is part of the National CASA Association. So the letters CASA stand for Court Appointed Special Advocate. And if I can tell you a little bit about the history of the organization, CASA is a volunteer role that was created by a family court judge in Seattle back in 1977. And what happened is the judge realized that he was having to make hugely significant and life-changing decisions about children in his courtroom without feeling like he had as much information as he wanted or needed to make those decisions. And so he had the idea of enlisting community members to serve in a volunteer role where they'd get to know one child or sibling group very well and use that knowledge to advocate for a child in child welfare court. So now there are nearly a thousand CASA programs in 49 states and in the District of Columbia. And here in Pennsylvania, there are 21 programs serving 27 counties. Wow. Are there any CASA organizations outside of the United States? Has this expanded beyond our borders at all? Do you know? You know, that is a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. Hmm. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. And how long has this been, this organization been running? Um, So in Delaware County, our agency um, has been serving kids since 1992, and we expanded our services to Chester County in 2015. Okay. And about how many youth does your organization reach, I would say, in like maybe a year's time? Sure. In 2019, we served 248 youth. 
Okay. It doesn't include Philadelphia, correct? It does not. Okay. It's children who are in the dependency court systems in either Delaware County or Chester County. Although you may know that kids in the foster care system are often placed far outside the county um, from which they originated. And so we do have kiddos placed all across the state of Pennsylvania, as well as outside the state. Right. Do you know about what the number is in the region that you serve as far as how many youth age out annually? I can't say how many youth age out in the counties that we serve. I can say that each year there's about 1,100, 1,000 to 1,100 kids in the dependency court system in Delaware County and about 250 in Chester County. As for our program, I can say that um, last year we had 81 youth close their cases with us. 18 of these children were between the ages of 18 and 21. And of those 18 children in that age range, 16 of them aged out. Okay. Okay. Well, help me understand what exactly your organization does then. So what are the different ways that you advocate for these youth? Sure. So we advocate for kids both inside and outside of the courtroom setting. We work with kids ages birth to 21. And last year, almost half of our children were actually ages 14 or older. And about one in five were 18 and older. So we really do provide a significant amount of services to older youth. Our advocates, we think, play a really powerful role in the lives of our youth, and I think particularly in the lives of older youth in what we like to think of as sort of three buckets. Um, So one of them is providing consistency. One is advocating for safety and permanency. And then the third is closing the gaps in services. Because the CASA model matches one advocate to one youth or sibling group, and advocates are asked to remain with the case from referral through closure in court, Um, The CASA is often the longest serving person on a child's case. So while we ask for CASAs to stay with us for at least one year of commitment, our advocates remain with the program for an average of four years. I was looking at our list last night, and we currently have 10 advocates who have been with the same CASA child for more than five years. And last year, we had a case closed where the CASA had been with the child for 12 years, from elementary school all the way through him aging out at age 21. And we think that this consistency is incredibly important for our older youth from both the perspective of building a trusting relationship between the advocate and the youth and ensuring that there's an adult on the case with a broad and lengthy knowledge of the child's history and the child's needs. Um, So that's sort of that first bucket of providing consistency. From the perspective of advocating for safety and permanency, our CASAs continue to seek permanent outcomes for all of our youth regardless of age. And whether this looks like supporting youth and caregivers in working towards reunification or helping identify and support extended family members who might be a housing resource for the child, encouraging older child adoption matching efforts, or advocating for goal changes to adoption for our older children, our CASA advocates continue to seek permanent outcomes for all of our youth, like I said, regardless of age. But for those who are approaching 18 without a permanency plan, Um, Advocates work with them to educate them about the benefits of continuing their dependency. So in Pennsylvania, kids can choose to remain in the dependency court system and in foster care through the age of 21. But after the age of 18, it's, it's voluntary. And so our advocates spend a lot of time encouraging youth to remain in care and to continue to take advantage of the resources that are available to them. And finally, the work our advocates do in what we think of as that third identified area of impact is closing the gap in services. It's really crucial to our youth who don't have an identified permanency resource. And so as youth approach the milestone of aging out, our advocates work closely with the youth, their family members, and the professionals on their team 
to ensure that there's a really viable plan for housing, income, education, medical and mental health care, transportation, and community connections. Having a team that is collaborating and functioning at the highest possible level is so crucial for youth who are approaching independence. And we find that the cost advocate can really play an important role in facilitating communication across providers. Our advocates also have really proven to be particularly successful in the role of educational advocate. Over the past two years, the agency has celebrated 14 high school graduations, um, and we expect to add to that number this year. Wow, fantastic. How does a youth get assigned a CASA worker? What is the, the trigger for that to happen? I imagine not every foster youth has a CASA worker in their corner. They don't. Unfortunately, we would love to provide a CASA to every child who's in care, and we hope that someday we'll get closer to that goal. Currently, we serve just under 20% of the youth in the two counties um, where we're working. It's a little different in the two counties. and I don't want to get into too much of the weeds of detail, but we have to be appointed to the case by a judge. And for us to have that appointment, someone needs to recognize that CASA would be a useful service and resource to this child or this family. So that can be any professional who's involved in the case, whether it's um, children, youth services or children, youth and families, depending on the county, juvenile probation officers, therapists, teachers, attorneys, all kinds of people who touch the lives of kids can make a referral to CASA. And then the judge actually um, agrees to sign the court order appointing us to the case. Right. It seems that the judges that have the leaning toward looking for that kind of support would be recommending more youth potentially than the judges who maybe don't necessarily either recognize the need or it's just outside of their wheelhouse. So how are judges made aware of this benefit for the youth? Absolutely. So um, as I said, we've been in Delaware County since 1992. So we're pretty well known in the community here. Um, obviously a younger program in Chester County. We did recently have a turnover in our dependency court judges, but um, we do, as a program, regularly meet with the judges. Uh, we give them updates uh, in person and by email about you know, how many advocates we have available and how many kids we're currently serving. Um, we participate in some multidisciplinary teams and stakeholder committees in, in both counties where we would have additional visibility for other professionals as well as judges. And you would just try to, to continue to maintain a good relationship with the professionals that we work with in hopes that people will recognize the work that CASA could do on a case um, and make referrals, you know, whenever they think it's appropriate. Right. That makes sense. Well, what about caseworkers, social workers? How do you build relationships with them? Because I would imagine that would be a critical partnership. It is, absolutely. And I just want to take a minute to commend the work that child welfare professionals are doing in both of the counties where we work, as, as well as the professionals in all of the child serving agencies. It's an incredibly difficult job. You know, there tend to be not enough resources available, and it's really hard work and at times very challenging. I think we work very hard to build relationships with the professionals that we work with. At times, there's differences of opinion about how a case should go, and that can cause conflict, obviously, among professionals. But we really train our advocates and, and our staff to stay laser-focused on the needs of the child and the best interest of the child and really think about what needs to happen in this case to move those best interests forward. And you know, in almost all cases, maintaining a, a collegial and collaborative and um, high on communication relationship with other professionals is at the core of making that happen. So I do think it's really important to the work that we do. 
Sure, absolutely. I can see that clearly. I could also see partnerships with local organizations that serve foster youth, either foster youth, you know, in care or those aging out would also be important. One, because you need to be aware of all of the services that are available so you can help close that gap, but also maybe getting referrals and things like that. So do you make a concerted effort to partner with those organizations? Absolutely. We look for opportunities to partner with organizations whenever we're able. Um, If we're finding that we have a lot of youth placed with a particular organization or a lot of families utilizing a particular service, um, we'll make specific outreach both at kind of caseworker levels and then at leadership levels to just talk about how the agencies can better collaborate and get to know one another. We also in both counties participate in a lot of, like I said, multidisciplinary teams, as well as coalitions and community building organizations that bring together people from a lot of different organizations serving youth and families in the two counties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I hear the word advocacy, of course, I understand you're primarily the, the child advocate, the youth advocate, but do you do any political advocacy for foster youth on the whole, or is that not really in your mission? Um, so interesting, you should ask. Um, just <laughs> just in the last year, uh, we received funding to convene a coalition of youth-serving organizations here in Delaware County, and that coalition is bringing together government, medical, educational, legislative, invested community members, all kinds of people who have an investment and a concern in improving the conditions of kids in Delaware County. So we're looking at what are the safety nets that are there for children and youth? Where are their gaps in services? Where do uh, services need to be better coordinated with one another? And the ultimate goal of that organization or that coalition is to be able to advocate for important changes in policy procedure and services in the county. Within the county, how about at the state level? I would imagine there might be some bleed over into state level services as well. Yes. So um, uh, there would be bleed over into state level services. And obviously state legislation would have a significant impact on kids in our county. So like I said, that coalition is, is in its infancy. And I do think that that work will continue to develop both on the local and state level. There is also a Pennsylvania CASA Association. Um, that's an association of all of the CASA programs in Pennsylvania that is doing that kind of system level advocacy with the state legislator. Okay, fantastic. Well, one of the questions that came to mind is related to the training for your advocates. What kind of training do they require? And maybe before that, what are the requirements for hire? Are you looking for people with particular degrees, particular experience? I'm just thinking there are CASA organizations all over the country. So anyone listening to this, I'm going to guess there might be a CASA organization near them. And I understand you're speaking for your county. I'm just thinking, you know, how, how do people who want to be advocates, you know, how, how do they sign up? And in your case, what do you look for and how are they trained? So the, the only hard requirement to be a cost advocate is to be 21 years of age. And then obviously be willing to complete our application process, which involves clearances and pre-service training. We welcome all advocates. We are looking for all advocates who can help advocate for the needs of kids in our community. At the moment, we are particularly in need um, of advocates who come from communities of color, of men, 
of members of the LGBTQ community and individuals with Spanish language skills. So um, there's a particular effort to recruit advocates in those groups. But like I said, we, we welcome and we really value all of our advocates. Once someone decides to, be in, to become involved with CASA, they fill out an application. So I'm just speaking to our local CASA and I'll tell you a little bit about you know, how to find a CASA program near you after this. You can come to um, our website, which is www.delcocasa.org or www.chescocasa.org. Um, so you come to the website, there's an application that you can fill out. You come in for an interview with one of our staff. Um, and if you decide that you want to move forward with the process of becoming an advocate, uh, we do have a hefty pre-service training requirement. It's about 35 hours of training. It's a combination of live training with the staff, although obviously in the time of COVID, it's, it's virtual training for us. Um, court observation, a good amount of take-home homework um, to do some studying and learning on your own. Um, and then once people complete training, they, they meet with staff again. They are sworn in by one of the dependency court judges, either in Delaware County or Chester County, and then they're ready to be batched with their first case. And how long does it typically take somebody to get through that training phase? I, I realize it might vary, but what's the general time frame? Um, at the moment, our training module is one week of training on, one week off, another week on, and then our swearing in. So if someone is interested... Once they start training, it probably takes about a month to get from the beginning to the end of training, both in terms of attending and then also getting clearances in order. Okay. Yeah, sure. That takes a little time. And how about trauma-informed care? Do you have any training along those lines? We do. So our pre-service training touches on a, a significant amount of topics. Obviously, um, working with kids in the child welfare system, understanding family systems, um, understanding the laws that govern the system really looking at the impact of trauma on kids and families, looking at the role of mental health diagnoses and substance abuse issues and working with families. So we have a very comprehensive pre-service training program. And then we require all of our advocates to do continuous learning with us. Um, so once they complete their initial training, they do 12 hours of training every year. Um, and those uh, topics really range across um, a variety of issues um, and people sort of select into what they think will be most interesting or helpful to them in their advocacy. So trauma-informed care is, is an important part of those ongoing modules. Right. Well, it seems to me if these are volunteer positions that the individuals who sign up and go through the training and are committed to completing the ongoing professional development, that they're really devoted. I, I could imagine you have a really devoted, passionate group of advocates. We do. Absolutely. I always say that um, our advocates inspire me every day and they make what could otherwise be um, challenging work much easier because of the amount of passion and the amount of commitment and the knowledge that they bring to working with the kids in, in the child welfare system. Okay. Let me ask this question. How many advocates does your organization oversee and how does that supervision of that many volunteers work? Um, sure. So we currently have 127 active advocates. They are supervised by four full-time program staff. And then we have an additional three staff who carry a part-time caseload and do some additional work in the agency. Um, and we really believe the importance of uh, every level of our agency continuing to do the work on the ground of working with kids and families. So our development director, our executive director, and I also carry some cases. 
And we really think our staff is all either trained social workers or attorneys. And we really think about our pre-service training, you know, bringing people up to the base of the mountain of being an advocate for a child. And it's the professional coaching relationship that really kind of helps them get up that mountain. And so our, our staff has close communication with advocates. They provide information about the child welfare system. They provide um, information about kind of foundational knowledge around trauma and family functioning. And they're really there to support advocates in the day-to-day work. And we really hope that that relationship will continue to be supportive, but will also be able to back up a little bit as advocates get more comfortable and more knowledgeable in the role. It's difficult work for advocates, particularly advocates who have not worked in the child welfare field before. And so having a professional who is there to support them and mentor them and coach them is really a very important part of our model. Okay. And about how many hours does an advocate spend on this work with the youth, or does it really vary based on the availability of each individual advocate? It does really vary. So what we say is we expect it to take about 10 to 15 hours a month. We do have advocates putting in significantly more time than that. Um, We do try to be mindful when advocates come to us of what their availability is. And if we have a sense in the beginning of a case of which cases might take more time because they're more complex or have more siblings um, or are closer to some kind of permanency decision, then, you know, we'll be mindful of that when we match advocates with cases so that we have people who are able to put in the amount of work that is needed on that particular case. Right. Okay. Okay. Now you had mentioned cases being closed. So when is a youth's case officially closed? What triggers that to happen? Um, A case closes with CASA when the case closes in dependency court. So hopefully for most of our kids, that means that they have reached permanency. They have either been reunified with family and the conditions that led them to be in foster care have been improved or alleviated or they have exited to a permanency option like adoption, where um, a parent's rights are terminated and the child is permanently adopted by a caregiver. Or I mentioned earlier, permanent legal custody. That is another permanency option that allows the system to step out of a child's life and step out of a family's life and let that family really raise and support that child with a lot of legal protections, but doesn't require the rights of the parents to be terminated. So that's all best case scenario. You know, as I mentioned before, we, we do have a large number of youth who exit the system by aging out um, because they did not achieve permanency prior to meeting one of the legal milestones of either 18 or 21. And when a case is closed, I could imagine, particularly if an advocate has been working with a youth for a long time, that that relationship might well extend beyond that time. So do you see much of that where the relationships continue on and they stay in touch with the youth? We do. You know, we, we encourage advocates that if we have really done the best work that we can do in setting a child up for a stable permanent placement with a loving caregiver, that, you know, that relationship will naturally end when case, cases close. Our advocates do still get updates on how kids are doing when they're either back home with parents or you know, have been adopted or, or achieved permanent legal custody. So we do have those check-ins with youth after their cases close. We really want it to be youth-generated. So we want the youth to be reaching out or the families to be reaching out to the CASA versus you know, the other way around. 
I would say it's the cases where youth have aged out, where that relationship really continues to be a significant and important part of the youth's journey. That's what I was envisioning, because I know with a lot of mentor programs, they build into the the mission, if you will, to build relationships that are lifelong. Because they're specifically working with youth aging out of the system, and the premise is that these youth don't have you know, strong relationships in family, you know, either extended family or their original family. And so having that extra relationship, that mentor is very uh, protective, right? It's, it's something that's going to help them succeed. So that doesn't surprise me when you say that you see it more with the older youth who have aged out. Absolutely. And, and we do have advocates who continue to be very engaged and invested in um, the journey of their youth after they age out of care. Um, that has been really particularly salient for us in the last couple of months as the COVID crisis has arisen. Um, we've had former foster youth who have come back and sought support and, and services through the agency because you know their CASA really was their primary, consistent, caring adult connection at the time that they left care. Right. Well, I definitely want to come back to the COVID-19 situation that we're in right now. But before we do, I did want to ask, how do you measure success? I know we talked about cases being closed and the different types of advocacy that you conduct there with the young people. But how do you measure success? What does success look like for your organization? How do you know you've done a good job? That's a great question. So as an organization, we are really uh, moving towards more of that data evaluation. So we have lots of qualitative data that tells us, you know, we're doing good work with kids, we're making a positive impact in their journeys. Um, but we are starting to really look at outcomes versus outputs in our data collection, and really think about you know, how would we measure success on a case? So some of the things that we think about is, you know, obviously a child exiting to a, a permanent safe home would be primary. Um, having them not re-enter care in the subsequent years would be, in, in our minds, a mark of success. Um, we also think, thinking back to those kind of three foundational services that we provide, we think that, you know, the more services and resources that we connect a child or family with, um, the more likely they are to be successful in the future. And so looking at tracking how many services we're referring families to, and then what does that actual referral look like? Is it just a handoff of a phone number or is there sort of a warm handoff with another professional who we know and trust and know will kind of pick up the care of the family? Um, it looks for us like kids having less placement changes. So having fewer placements while they are in foster care moving out of the foster care system more quickly, so reducing the length of time that they are in care. And then things like high school graduation, seeing kids achieve the things that they will need to be successful in the future. And how much of that work do you do as far as helping the young people reach their goals? Specific to education? Uh, education, career, uh, housing, any of the things, and I'm, of course, I typically focus on the older youth, but any of those things that enable them to be able to live independently. Do your advocates help these young people set goals and make decisions to try to achieve them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our advocates are really an important part of that conversation. And in a best case scenario, we're bringing together all of the professionals who are involved with a child, as well as any community connections that child has, whether that's family or teachers or neighbors or people who care for the child and are invested in you know, their future growth and success. 
and really thinking about what is an appropriate, viable, achievable, specific plan for this child and how can we help the child reach that goal? Yeah. And I, and I really think success here is often measured by over planning. And so knowing that the situation, <laughs> the situation for our kids can change in just an instant. And a lot of the youth we work with do not have the safety net that you know typical teens would have. And so really having a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and knowing who is responsible for different parts of that plan, but really letting the youth guide that conversation. So where do they see themselves? Do they want to go to college? Do they want to go to trade school? Do they want to work and start saving money? Do they really want to exit care in a family situation or do they feel like they can live on their own in an apartment? It's really having those conversations. And like I said, because our advocates are with our youth for so long and I think know them so well, they can really help drive those conversations and thinking about, you know, where do we go from here? And if a child is 16 and we know, you know, 18 is, is still two years away, that two years passes quickly. What do we need to do in those years leading up to 18 or leading up to 21 to make sure that that youth is really able to achieve the goals that they have set for themselves? Right, right. So really your advocates, your, your mentors, your facilitators, your connectors, as far as connecting with organizations and other people, there are a lot of different hats that your advocates wear. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Now, let me go back to the COVID-19. So how has the COVID-19 situation impacted the work that you do? Of course, we all know that getting together in person has been dramatically impacted, but you serve a lot of young people. And I know that foster youth, particularly older foster youth that are facing aging out during this time, that they're looking at a lot of challenges uh, without any kind of you know extension of, of their ability to stay in the foster care programming. So what are what are maybe some of the top you know two or three impacts that you've seen in regard to the work that you do with youth? Absolutely. So um, it's funny you say the top two or three because I think I can I can list five or six. But I oh, would say <laughs> <laughs> I would say you know we've seen several current and former Casa youth lose housing due to their college or technical program closing, and they don't necessarily have a family to come back to. So you're making plans for those youth. Kids who are living in their own apartments and preparing to exit care have lost jobs. And so now they're worried about spending through the savings that they had set aside to you know, make sure that they were stable after their case closes. We've obviously seen you know, significant impacts on the ability of the system to place a child in a new placement setting. So if we have kids for whom their placement is no longer working and they need to move or they choose to AWOL or run away from that placement, the consequences are much higher and it's much more difficult to get them into a new placement setting. And then, you know, you can imagine the challenges of being asked to shelter in place with a family you have just met or in a new residential placement setting where you have just been placed. And so both that, you know, financial and stability concern, um, and then also just the, the mental health and trauma and that connection is something that we're, we're seeing impacting the youth that we work with. Right. And the foster parents as well. Absolutely. Yep. I know that there are a lot of stresses for the foster parents um, in addition. So it's just such a difficult situation all around. Now you're out east. Are you all still yellow out there? We are still yellow. We just turned yellow and I think probably pretty soon we'll be transitioning to green. 
CASA has not closed. We are still advocating for the youth that we serve. We have transitioned from live home visits because most of our visits with advocates happen with the children in the places where those children live. So we have transitioned to virtual visits. We have asked our advocates to increase that level of contact from it used to be at least monthly to now at least weekly so that we can really stay ahead of any concerns that arise for children and their foster parents and their biological parents. And also just provide that consistent personal connection and support. I know, you know, it's, it's difficult for all of us to lose that personal connection, you know, during this time when, when we're all in our own homes. And so thinking about our advocates as being important adults to the youth that they work with and making sure that they continue to have contact. You know, we have also been incredibly fortunate. We don't typically serve at the front line of providing for a child's material needs. But during this time, we have really been able to increase our work in this area through some generous donations from individual donors and then some foundation funding. And so we have a CASA CARES fund and a higher education fund that allows us to provide some financial support and material things to our youth. So for us, that's looked like you know, help with housing, groceries, hygiene supplies, electronic devices, and then even assistance with things like paying phone and electric bills. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. And I've heard many other organizations have done the same thing. They've pivoted so that even though it's not in their main mission, that they can help the young people out with these more material needs. And I, I really appreciate that you all are doing that. Have you seen an uptick in foster care placements during this time? I wouldn't want to speak to what the county has seen. Our referrals have remained relatively steady. So we as an agency have continued to receive referrals. Um, you know, I know that there is information out there about child line referrals decreasing across the state during this time. And so I don't know what that's actually looked like for the counties that we work with. Okay. All right. I was just curious about that. Now, you work directly with the court system. From your perspective... And maybe we can kind of zero in on the court system. I, I will ask most of my podcast um, interviewees how you think the system, quote unquote, big picture, could improve to better serve foster youth. And so you have a unique perspective from the court side of things. And, you know, we don't use this time to, to slam anybody. That's not the purpose. It's really more to think about solutions and ideas, maybe out of the box ideas. I'm just wondering if you've ever, you know, considered any particular improvements that you see on the whole that the, the foster care system could do to improve the services to the youth. I, I have, and I think that there's a lot to unpack in this question, you know, but at the bottom of all of my answers, I think would be a change in government funding priorities and then systemic changes to make it easier for youth and families to access and utilize resources and services. So, you know, the court is limited in, in what it can do if there are not services and resources available to refer or in some cases mandate families and youth to participate in. So, you know, I think more funding and resources around those reunification services. So parenting education that is specific to parenting teens and teens with, you know, mental health or behavioral concerns, more resources for things like family therapy. I think, you know, more access to mental health and trauma-focused services, and then being able to reduce barriers to accessing those services. A huge thing that we see is housing as an issue. 
And so more affordable housing options, both for families who want to be reunified with their children but cannot because of housing, and then for our youth who are aging out of care and are going to be living on their own, being able to identify housing that is affordable to them. Yeah, for our older youth, I really think you know, more effort and more funding around recruiting, training, and retaining foster families specifically for older youth, because we see our older youth so often end up in congregate care settings or settings where they're living together, you know, with other youth in more of a facility setting, just because there's a lack of appropriate foster homes for older youth and a lack of appropriate adoptive resources for our older youth who, you know, may not be able to be reunified. And then I would say from a court setting, just really valuing permanency as an outcome and never thinking that a child is too old to be adopted or too old to be reunified. We see you know, lots of kids come into care because of you know, what we classify as parent-child conflict. Um, and when this occurs, there's just not enough resources for the court to be able to refer those families to to heal that conflict. So the goal stays reunification, but then time quickly passes reunification is not appropriate or safe, and then children don't have a secondary option. And I think that's when we see a lot of our youth age out of care. And so really always coming back to what is the permanent solution for this child. And then when it's clear that there isn't a permanent caregiver, really pivoting and thinking about who are the lifelong connections we can build for this child. You know, so our kids they go to college or they go out into their own apartments and they don't have someone to call to celebrate a good grade or to ask help with budgeting questions or just to talk through a bad day. And so as we think about kids aging out of care, it's really about more than identifying a roof and an income stream, but it's really about increasing their connection to the community. And I think a child's whole professional team needs to be responsible for that and to communicate and collaborate with one another and with the child's natural supports to really make that plan. So that when kids leave care, they're not leaving care alone. Right, exactly. I think that one of the challenges is that the foster care system, what is measured is generally around those material things. You know, do they have a roof over their head? Do they have a bed to sleep in? Do they have enough food? You know, hopefully are they not being mistreated? You know, that kind of thing sort of the basics of survival. And I believe if the system could change so that what you're measuring, yes, you need to measure those things, but you're also measuring the progress toward permanency or the progress toward a supportive relationship. And if we could add that to the other things that they measure and track, I think it could go a long way. I agree. Yeah. How are you funded? Because you, you've mentioned providing and getting grants and such. So how is it that your organization is funded and are all CASA organizations funded in basically the same way? They are not. So across the country, CASA programs look differently um, depending in the state that they are in um, and depending, you know, sometimes within those states in the counties that they are in. So in Pennsylvania, most of the, of the CASA programs are individual nonprofits. That is the case for our program. We are a 501c3. There are some programs that are operated by the county government in the county in which the program resides. So for us, we build our entire operating budget every year. Um, that is through a variety of government and foundation funds, individual giving, and fundraising. 
So if somebody were to say want to donate funding to you or, or even some physical items, do you accept both? We do. Um, so, you know, uh, again, our website is either um, delcocasa.org or chestcocasa.org. At that website, you can donate. You can make donations to our general operating fund, or you can make donations to um, the individual funds that I reference that are providing tangible material goods to our families and our children. That can be done through the website. You can also obviously contact us if you're interested in learning more, participating in something called a, an impact hour where people can come and learn more about the organization. Um, so if you're interested in that, you would also access that information through our website. Okay. And if they wanted to talk to you, how would they reach you directly? They could either call or email. Is that on your website? It is on our website, but I'll give you our phone number is 610-565-2208. And they could ask for Mary Kate. And my email is mkhoward at delcocasa.org. Wonderful. So if anybody wants to speak with you or even donate to your organization, now, uh, now you have a way to do so. Before we sign off, I want to ask you one final question. I've never asked this question. Maybe I'll start asking everybody in the interview. <laughs> but if you were to finish the statement, how would you do so? The thing I love the most about Casa Youth Advocates is dot, dot, dot. The thing I love most about Casa Youth Advocates is seeing growth. Um, so seeing growth in our staff, seeing growth in our advocates who sometimes come to us with no knowledge about the child welfare system and sometimes end up being the most impactful person on a case and seeing growth in the youth that we serve and seeing kids achieve the goals that they've set for themselves and really valuing youth's voices in their own outcomes and seeing the way our program has grown to hear and amplify those voices rather than just speaking for the youth. Wow. That's a nice wrap up right there. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Mary Kate, for joining our podcast today. I really enjoyed listening uh, and learning about CASA Youth Advocates. I know there are so many CASA organizations out there. So if there are any other CASA program directors or leaders and you think that your organization might like to be highlighted on our podcast as well, just go to our website and let us know and, uh, and we'd be happy to have you on. So thanks so much, Mary Kate, for participating participating. It's been great. And I do wish you all the best moving forward. Oh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about our program. Oh, thanks. And you're very welcome. All right. For those who have listened to the end, thank you very much. Uh, as I uh, usually will state at this time, we put out our podcast every one to two weeks. So just keep an eye on our website, um, Aging Out Institute backslash podcasts, or you could go to a variety of different podcast distributors and they are listed on our website as well. And you can get our podcast from there. So thank you all very much. 